Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Vaborg Thun, and tonight I bring to you, as promised, a true morsel of true crime delight. This is a standalone episode outside of my regular scheduling because I simply could not let this opportunity pass by. I have with me Megan Cloherty and Jack Moore. They are behind the brand new podcast, 22 Hours, an American Nightmare. It was a case nightmares are made of. A DC power couple, their 10-year-old son and housekeeper held hostage for nearly 24 hours and murdered inside a burning DC mansion. WTOP examines the complicated trail of evidence that police say led to the finding of their killer and why they say he committed such a brutal crime. I have the privilege of having them on my show, Megan and Jack. Welcome to the show. Real excited to have you on board. How are you? Good. How are you? Thank you for having us. I'm doing very well here in Norway. It's uh, rainy and uh, quite cold, so I'm uh, a bit envious of you guys. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's getting a little muggy and hot here in Washington, D.C., but it, it's been about a couple months since the trial. You know, the trial of, of Darren Wint ended in November, and we're about to debut this podcast in June, so we're very excited to share it with you. Yes, I know it's uh, debuting the 10th of June, if I'm not mistaken. Correct, yes. Yes, and uh, before we dive into the meat of the matter, please tell my listeners a bit about yourself. Who are you and what's your background and how did you get into true crime? Well, my name is Megan Cloherty. I'm a reporter at WTOP. We're a radio station, an all-news radio station in D.C., and I cover uh, crime and courts for the most part. That's my beat. 
Usually, you know, there's a lot of crime in D.C. and we try and follow it from the crime all the way through the court process and follow the story. So really, true crime is, is my day job. But this case, when, when it started, it, it really just grabbed the attention of everyone in our community just because of how seemingly random it was, where it was located, and we can get into all of that. But we decided that there was so much detail and it was so complex that we would sort of take it to a new level and cover it through a podcast. That's how I found myself here. And Jack and I work together. Yeah, and I'm a, a digital writer editor for WTOP.com. And sometimes we work on our own projects and sometimes we work together with the on-air reporters. And because this trial was so complex, Megan and I worked on it together. And then from, from our work there, that's how the podcast was born. All right. And both of you are natives of uh, Washington, D.C., or are you, do you hail from somewhere else? I am. I'm, I'm from right outside Washington, D.C. in Maryland. And I'm actually originally from Ohio, the Midwest, and I moved um, to D.C. about 10 years ago. Okay, I've heard the teaser episode out on Podcast One for 22 Hours on American Nightmare. It's really good. I'm especially impressed with the production quality. I guess that comes with the territory when we're talking about the good folks from the land of radio. <laughs> the podcast is produced by a radio station you mentioned. Is that right? Yes, actually, we're the only two people working on it. Um, so Jack uh, basically writes the episodes and we work together on that process. And then I voice and cut them. So I'm, I'm the production side of that. Right on. And the, uh, the radio station is uh, WTOP. What does that stand for? Well, it started because when we were one of the first radio stations in D.C. and we got to choose what our dial was. So we chose the top of the dial. So they decided to name it WTOP. WTOP, and it was 1500 AM, and now we are an FM station here in, here in Washington. And we just, we basically cover news that the concept of our, our station is that, you know, you can listen for 15 minutes and you will have all the news you need to know, including sports and business and traffic and weather, as well as international, national, and local news. All right. I envy America. You guys have radio that is far superior to here in Norway. Radio in Norway is quite horrible. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. You guys can stream us anytime, although I'm not sure you'll, you'll really want to know about the local news in D.C., but sometimes D.C. No, local news is national news and international news. I know. Yes, I know. It's, uh, I mean, the documentary series House of Cards is... Uh, is uh, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Very popular, although it's, it's over now, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, too bad what happened with that show. In my introduction to this featured episode we are recording now, I told my dear listeners a very brief summary of the topic. Can you tell us a somewhat shorthand version of what 22 Hours and American Nightmare covers? What are the main facts, the main players, and locations? So, yeah, just to start with, you know, as you mentioned, you know, this being a case that nightmares are made of, that's what the prosecutor said in the trial. And it really kind of summed up what this case is about. This family, he was a, a wealthy businessman here in D.C. He ran a construction company and the crime involved him, his wife, his 10-year-old son and the family's housekeeper who were taken captive inside their own home, held for 22 hours, which is where the, the title comes from. And while they were being held, $40,000 was withdrawn from the businessman father's company's bank account and then dropped off at the house. And once the money had been delivered, the victims were 
brutally killed, and then the house was set on fire. And then quickly, the question became, who would do this and why would they do this? For a while in the beginning of the investigation, D.C. police were telling us that, you know, this couldn't have been committed by one person. It was much more likely it was more than one person who took control of uh, three adults and a child and held them for that long, were able to extort money out of them and, and eventually killed them. So for, for three years until between the, between the crime and the trial was about three years time. And we were waiting for more details on who these other people were who took part in the crime. And it ended up that it was just one man. And the prosecution was able to prove in court how one man could have done it. So Darren Wint was convicted in this crime. It's not a whodunit podcast, but similar to, to your show, Thomas, it's, it's about how this happened, why this happened. And we lay out all of the evidence and the testimony presented in trial. We talk to witnesses and sources after the fact, after they took the stand and lay out chronologically, kind of going with you through the journey of this crime and, and how it happened and, and what happened. And we should say, uh, Darren went, he was convicted, he was sentenced for life terms, which was the harshest penalty he could get in the District of Columbia, which does not have the death penalty. However, he maintains his innocence. He, he took the stand in his own defense in this trial and you know, said he's completely innocent. And he is appealing his conviction. So one of the things we, we, we're not raising questions about his conviction or even the evidence that links him to the crime, but we do lay out all of the evidence and we do give what his defense team, you know, their claims, we give them an airing too. So, you know, we, we think that the case was, you know, the jury made the right decision, but we lay out all the evidence for everyone to, to you know, make their own consideration. That's good. Fair and balanced is something uh, you guys in America like to say, isn't it? <laughs> so, it is. yes, I think it's, uh, some station, I think, says that. Yeah. OK, so um, can you briefly tell me what uh, his defense uh, consists of? What, what's his uh, main spiel? Why does he claim his innocence? Well, I mean, it was actually it ended up being a bombshell is what we called it. Uh, the first day of trial, we finally learned who Darren Wint said committed these crimes. And he, in fact, blamed his two brothers. So it was interesting. Right out of the gate, you have the family, the two families who were affected because not only was the Savopolis family, the son and father and mother killed, but then their housekeeper, Viralisha Figueroa, was also murdered. So her family was in mourning. So not only do you have one family or two, two families torn apart who were the victims, but then you also have the defendant's family, Darren Wint's family, now in turmoil because he was blaming his two brothers for doing this and basically said that he had kind of been tricked into coming to the house. Some people might remember this being on, on the news or seeing it on the news because the way that police ended up finding the killer was through a piece of pizza. They tested a piece of pizza, Domino's pizza crust that they found at the house after the killings. And it ended up that it had his DNA on the pizza crust. So he essentially said, you know, this was my brother's doing. They told me there was a job going on at the house that I could help out with, a, like a painting kind of job. And he showed up and they had pizza there and he had a piece of pizza, left it there. And then when he got an inkling of what was going on, that there may be something untoward happening, he left. That was his defense. It's interesting, though, now in the times that we're living in, how it changes investigations as far as technology goes. So not only do you have to account for DNA, but you have to account for your cell phone and where it's pinging off of and 
GPS coordinates in your car and all of these different things that kind of came into play. And he really had to account for all of the evidence against him. It ended up the jury didn't believe him and they found it was enough reasonable doubt to convict him. But it was an interesting trial. There was a lot of detail and and he actually took the stand in his own defense. You know, that's an interesting thing to continue Megan's point. When we look at the evidence in the case, in a lot of ways, the evidence was really not in dispute, but it was, well, from what perspective do you look at the evidence? So, for example, while the family was being held hostage, their killer basically forced them to order a pizza and the killer ate it. And when they tested pizza crust, they found his DNA on the pizza. But his version of events was he was just at the house. He didn't know anyone was being held there and he ate the pizza. So, yes, of course, my DNA is on the pizza because I ate it. Another interesting piece of evidence that really just matter depends on how you look at it is he was an avid Facebook user. That's really how he kept in contact with all of his friends. This is the convicted killer we're talking about. And over the time, the two days that the the victims were held hostage and then killed, he goes radio silent, doesn't send a single message on Facebook, doesn't ever update his status, doesn't do anything on Facebook. So to the prosecution's point of view that that was very damning because here's somebody who's constantly using Facebook. And then over the time that these four people are being held captive and killed, you know, obviously you wouldn't have time to be on Facebook. But when he took the stand, he presented a completely alternate theory for why he would not be using his Facebook at all. And we get into that, you know, throughout the podcast. So it was really interesting the way that the evidence looks really solid And it was, but it also depends on kind of how you interpret the evidence. Of course. But you mentioned earlier that uh, the prosecution uh, thinks that, uh, or at least in the beginning, didn't think this was a crime possible to commit by only one person. So are there any more suspects in the pipeline or how is that? We don't think so. It, it, it was interesting because we wondered if at any point before the trial started, if Darren Wint was going to flip on somebody, which may be sort of an Americanized term, but, you know, rat out somebody else for taking part in this. We didn't know if someone maybe hired him to do it or if he wasn't involved at all and he was the one taking the fall. It turns out that, you know, there's not any DNA evidence on anyone else. No one's fingerprints were found there. There's, there's no one else who came, who came forward in this as a suspect. And in fact, the police actually investigated his two brothers just because they kind of had to. I and mean, one of them actually was with him, was with Darren Wint when he was arrested. And the other is his brother from the same mother. So they have similar DNA, similar hair DNA. So one of Darren Wint's pieces of hair was found in the bloody bedding in the bedroom where three of the adults, the three adults were found. And so the police had to make sure that his brother, who could have, could have been a hair from his brother, the way that we've learned that DNA works, it's called mitochondrial DNA. They had to make sure his brother, you know, had an alibi and where he was and, and all of that. So anyway, it was just, it was a very interesting case just from the crime itself. It happened right near the vice president's residence, just a few blocks away in a mansion in a very, very well-to-do neighborhood in Washington, D.C., where there's hardly any, if any, crime. And when the firefighters rushed there, it was the middle of the day when the fire broke out. So in the middle of the day on a weekday, 
mostly, you know, you don't assume people are sleeping. You don't assume anyone's really in the house. Probably it's probably a kitchen fire or something. And in fact, they end up finding all four victims. Yes, I heard that in the uh, introduction episode available on Podcast One, and uh, it's quite gruesome the way the uh, firefighters describe discovering that the bodies that they find are actually covered in blood. Yes, and I don't think they're used to that. They're, you know, they're used to fire injuries where people are overcome by smoke, and they can't see much anyway because of the, the state of the, the thick smoke in front of them. So. One of the, we describe Sergeant Ader is, is one of the firefighters who responds to the scene and he finds the bodies and is trying to pick them up and take them outside so they can be resuscitated and they keep slipping through his grasp and he can't figure out why it's not making sense to him in the moment. Later he finds out it's because they're covered in blood and he actually can't get a grip on them. So I know you probably don't want to reveal too many details, but how were they killed? For the most part, they were stabbed and they were beaten. And they were, for the most part, we can tell that the weapons were inside of the house. So we think that some of the weapons, or the prosecutors think that some of the weapons were used, was a samurai sword, which the homeowner collected, perhaps kitchen knives, and then a baseball bat that was used by the little boy as his little league baseball bat. It actually had his name engraved on it because his grandfather had given him that bat as a present. And we learned that not only were the adults bound at their hands and feet in chairs in a room together, but they suffered similar injuries that the medical examiner said it's hard to tell just because there was a fire afterwards. And a lot of times, you know, if there's a fire, it destroys evidence and the heat can kind of exacerbate injuries, if you will. But they could tell that all of them had been stabbed in different parts of their bodies. All of them had been beaten with the baseball bat. And the little boy, unfortunately, he was in another room tied to the bed. And the medical examiner could not determine based on his injuries if he died before the fire or because of the fire. He had been stabbed, but they didn't know if he was alive when the fire started. Yes. My next question was going to be what made this crime especially heinous, but uh, considering what you just said about a little boy being tied to a bed and stabbed to death or burned to death, depending on whatever happened. I mean, I think it's self-explanatory. Yes, and it's hard to think, too. You know, this went on for so long. Again, for 22 hours, they were held against their will. And it's just hard to think about what perhaps the killer was doing to try and maybe get more money or to try and upset the adults, you know, by using the child against them. We don't know that he did, but we don't know that he didn't. And your mind goes to dark places when you think about, you know, how horribly it, their lives ended. And that's something to continue Megan's point, you know, kind of that adds a layer of really psychological terror that these people experience. Because first of all, you think about people being inside their own home. That's a, usually a place of safety, comfort, stability. And so to have that turned into a crime scene is, you know, particularly disturbing. And there is, you know, kind of there's a, a strain of crime in the United States of this idea of the home invasion. And it goes back to, you know, one of the most famous examples of In Cold Blood, the nonfiction book written by Truman Capote in the 1960s, I believe. So this idea, you know, it's, it's very psychologically disturbing to be, to be attacked in your own home. 
And then when you think about the length of time that it went on, that 22 hours of, of our title, that's a really long time to be held captive. And so, so as Megan was saying, you know, you just, you can't imagine what's going on. And for as much evidence as we, as we have, you know, we don't have an accounting of every single minute. You know, we know, we know roughly when it began, we know roughly when it ended and, and that's it. Thomas, the interesting thing too, one of the interesting things about this case is while they were being held hostage, some of the victims were making phone calls out of the house to family members, to the bank to try and get that money, to Domino's Pizza. Different calls were made and no one at the end of any of those calls suspected anything was wrong. And we have some of those voicemails that we play during the podcast, but it also then goes to you know, how you are listening to this podcast and listening to their voices and thinking, how could you have held it together to make those phone calls and make it sound like everything was fine when everything was so wrong? Yes, it's very disturbing. And it's uh, reminiscent of several films, actually. It's a film called, I think it's called um, Fun Games or something like that by Werner Herzog, I think, about this American upper-class family having this gorgeous summer house by, by a lake. Uh, Funny Games, that's the name of it. Funny Games. Mm. It has a fantastic house, similar to the ones in, in this story, and uh, like this very typical American power couple with children. And then suddenly these two um, snobbish-looking young men are inside their living room. And thus begins 22 hours, about 24 hours in that case, of uh, pure torture and hell. It's very similar. It's uh, quite airy to listen to this true story. And having seen that film, Funny Games, it's very, very similar because they too exploit the family for money and then they start to just basically torture them for fun. And I mean, and, and as horrible as it sounds, there are other examples of this happening in real life. There was a case out of Connecticut in 2009, very high profile case. So it is something that, you know, I, I guess similar to the idea that, you know, there, the serial killer profile, this kind of crime does happen. It's, you know, it's very uncommon. It's not something happening on, on every street corner in America, but it does happen. There is a history of, of this happening. It's something about America when it comes to crime that is unique in the world. I've talked about it briefly on my podcast because it's, although serial killers, which is my forte, happens all over the world, Russia, Australia, South America, Europe, Canada, and the United States, the United States is overrepresented to an extreme degree. There's so many. According to the FBI, it's about 100 serial killers on the loose at all times in America. That's an unnerving thought. Maybe I'll just stay in this in this booth and never leave. <laughs> I, I, it was I wanted what something you said jogged my memory about the motive because it's interesting. You might have some good insight for us as far as your your background, but we never felt that the motive that was presented really lined up with the how aggressive and it seemingly personal the killings were. Essentially, he was able to extort $40,000 out of Sava Savopoulos, who was the father, and it was his house. As far as we can tell, as far as prosecutors could find, the killer never looked for the house. 
He never looked for any kind of information online, on his phone, about the wealth of the family. Didn't know really where they lived, as far as we can tell. Never searched for directions there or anything. And we should say at this point that the the convicted killer did work at this construction company for, you know, this businessman. But it was 10 years before the killings. And as far as we learned at the trial, Darren Wint was was let go from the company back in 2005 for missing work. So if he held some kind of grudge about that, it was a decade long. Yeah. And then the the killings end up being so, you know, it's not. I don't know how much you know about about this and probably more than I do, but we've talked to a criminologist as well about it because it's not like a shooting can be a little more impersonal, but stabbings are more personal, I think, on the, you know, on the scale. And just for how these people were tortured and how they were killed, it seems like you would need more than just to be, you know, fired 10 years ago to do something like this. It's just, it's unbelievable. And we should say also that prosecutors, they don't have to in the American justice system, they don't have to, as part of their case, provide a motive. They don't have to say why he did it. They only have to prove that he did it. Although they did offer during the trial, their theory of the motive was greed. He got the $40,000 and then he killed them because he wanted to get away with it. But to Megan's point, because this was so brutal, we just couldn't, you know, it was really hard to square the idea that for money, you know, purely out of greed, somebody could commit such such monstrous acts. Right. Well, it's a reminiscence of a very famous serial killer named Dennis Rader, BTK. Oh, yeah. We know him it's, as BTK uh, here, yes. Yeah, he's uh, bind, torture, and kill. His modus operandi, if you're familiar with him, is uh, he went into families' homes typically well-to-do, middle-class families. As a pretext of uh, robbery, he usually said he was there to take their car and to take any money that were, uh, was in the house. He uh, needed to tie them up, and as soon as he had tied them up, he promised he would uh, leave with the money. But what, of course, he instead did was that as soon as he had the families tied up, he proceeded to torture all of them and rape them and uh, strangle them and then wake them up and uh, rape them some more and strangle them some more and torture them some more and then finally killing them all. Wow. And he did it over and over and over again. There's no sexual assault in, in this case, but it, but it, is, it does sound similar. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, serial killers have multiple motives depending on, on who they are. And uh, some of them are sexually motivated. Some of them are violently motivated. They're, they're main, they're sadists. They wish to uh, inflict pain. They get pleasure from causing people pain. Uh, that's quite common. Often they also are greedy. I mean, there are several serial killers throughout history that operated from a, a, a point of view from greed as the beginning. And then they got a taste for it, for killing and torturing. And uh, they, they suddenly found them Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener. And as a man, I was, and am, often told to suck it up, keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations. But never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serial killer today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash serial killer. Self-having greed as the secondary motive. You have H.H. H. Holmes, for example, the very famous Devil in the White City. He uh, constructed a murder hotel that uh, originally he used to get money because he sold the corpses to the medical hospitals up in Chicago. But uh, again, he went far beyond what, it, what was basically necessary to just get the money. He tortured people. He uh, suffocated them using elaborate methods. He performed vivisections of, on them without anesthesia and so on. I mean, you have very, very, very disturbed individuals out there. So I'm, I can't speak to this guy if he's one of them. But it does sound very much like a disturbed individual that went far beyond what was strictly necessary in order to get $40,000. I mean, I'm pretty sure if he had the family tied up and he threatened their son that a rich father would have had no problem just giving him $40,000 and then leaving. And he, if he had a, a mask covering his, his face and, and gloves and everything, then there would be no reason to, to kill them because the risk of being caught for murder far exceeds a basic robbery. It's an interesting case. Absolutely. And I mean, that's one of the things that we, after the trial, as we've, as we've been putting together this podcast, have really been 
you know, kind of struggling with to understand of who was this person, because that didn't really come out so much at the trial in part, uh, large part, because he claims he's innocent, you know, but we, one of the things that we do have is his search histories that on his phone. So basically everything he was ever, he had ever looked up on his phone. And there were some incriminating searches after the fact. So, you know, searches like how to beat a lie detector test and um, top U.S. cities for fugitives and even, you know, countries with no extradition treaty. So, you know, those are very incriminating searches. But beforehand, you know, there's really nothing in his search history to indicate that he was planning anything or to indicate that he was anything other than a normal person, you know, to one interest, you know, um, kind of interesting thing that maybe reveals something about his personality or his motivation is that he was obsessed with luxury cars, which the family had, uh, Porsches and and Audis, you know, things like that. Uh, he was so he was searching all the time, you know, Lamborghinis and and BMWs, and also he was obsessed with playing the lottery. So even to the point where he would, a family member had given him an old laptop that he would use to tinker around with numbers, you know, probabilities and things. And he was obsessed with winning the lottery, which, you know, a lot of people in the United States play the lottery regularly and, you know, maybe have dreams that, you know, they'll come into a large sum of money. But I think knowing what we know of, of what he did, which was, you know, to kill four people brutally to get $40,000, that obsession with, with the idea of easy money, you know, be, becomes more sinister. And in fact, after, after the killings, when he had this $40,000 and he was seen flashing some of it around to acquaintances and they, they had never seen him with that much money before. And they said, where did you get it? And he said, I won the lottery. Well, if he is the killer, I cannot speak to that. I am going to, uh side with the American courts on this one and uh, satisfy myself with that. But if he is the killer, he sounds like a very stupid killer. It's quite amazing the amount of obvious errors that he, he, he did. I mean, first of all, why 40,000? Why not 100,000? I mean, it should have been quite easy to get 100,000 if the family was really rich. So that's odd. Second of all, the pizza. I mean, how dumb are you that you leave food that you've eaten at the crime scene. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's quite, it's mind boggling and not using gloves, not using a hairnet. I mean, these are crime one-on-one. I mean, like you basic, don't, yeah. we think yeah, he did I mean, use gloves because there was never any fingerprints of his found at the scene. So I think he did wear gloves. We don't have any glove evidence. Like no one ever found gloves. The $40,000 is interesting because the businessman actually had to call the CFO of his company and the controller of his company to try and get the money out and dropped off at his house. And both of those people testified and said, you know, it wasn't uncommon for him to take out that kind of money. He didn't do it on an everyday basis. But every once in a while, he would go and buy or go to auctions and buy, you know, very expensive specialized equipment. And you'd need that kind of money to go to the auctions with. So part of me, I mean, we don't have any facts about this, but I've always wondered if he, if the homeowner, the, the businessman chose that amount of money because it wouldn't raise any eyebrows because it wasn't so much money that his company would be like, well, that's weird. I wonder if he's okay. It was like, oh, well, he's probably using it for, for the auctions. The pizza is interesting too, because DC police for the most part did not at that time test any perishable items. So they, they, they were in the practice of not testing 
food for DNA. Maybe that speaks to <laughs> to how their technologies have advanced since then. But it was sort of on a whim that they just that the ATF investigator here, um, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Bureau, was helping with the case, and they decided to test the pizza, and that's how they found it. And what you know, I think maybe he, the killer, thought that he was smarter than he was, and he did set the house on fire. The problem is the whole house didn't burn down. So that's how they were able to get the pizza. Perhaps in his mind, he was thinking the whole house is going to, you know, burn to the ground and there'll be no evidence. Yeah, and it's it's a weird thing to do because uh, from what I understand, he set the house on fire, not the bodies. He poured gasoline in the rooms where the where the people were and on actually tragically, on the, the little boy and the, and the bed that he was on. So that's where the fire started. The fire investigators were able to determine that. But he didn't put gasoline throughout the house. So really, it was the upstairs floor, those two bedrooms, and a little bit, you know, of residual burning. But the rest of the house was relatively, I mean, there was smoke damage, but nothing was erased. And, and part of the problem for him, so to speak, was that a, a person just driving through the neighborhood happened to spot the smoke pretty quickly and and was able to call police and the firefighters showed up. So I think, you know, maybe in his mind, you know, the fire would have burned for a lot longer. But I think, you know, it was such a nice neighborhood and it was in the middle of the day. Everyone's going to see smoke, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's wildly idiotic. Really, really, really amateurish. BTK, to get back to him, he got away with his crimes for several decades before he, uh, he messed up and, and uh, revealed himself due to his extreme need for attention. Mm. But uh, he was highly intelligent, well, is highly intelligent, and uh, went to extreme lengths to not leave any traces at his crime scenes and uh, did a lot of research. And uh, yeah, so this guy just sounds so amateurish. I mean, it's, uh, it's well, quite it's interesting. And to that point, it remains an open question of when he went in and, and took the family hostage from the beginning, what was his plan? You know, was he really planning on going as far as he did? And did something change in him over those 22 hours where a sense of desperation of trying to get away with it changed what was actually going to happen? He also didn't have any, as far as the killer's background. There wasn't really as, at least it would seem to me that there would be sort of a ramping up of, of violence in your background to get to a point where you would kill three people and a child. But the only, I mean, he, he has had brushes with the law. He had a couple protective orders taken out against him, obviously had some anger issues, but there were really no prior convictions that would have given anyone in law enforcement, you know, an idea to keep an eye on this guy. Well, definitely not to this degree. There were some, there wasn't an assault which he actually did serve time. But, you know, this is just a, a completely different scale, you know, that it's hard to imagine where, where this brutality would come from. Well, that's the real terrifying thing about psychopaths and sociopaths is that they don't look monstrous. They don't act like monsters. They act very normal. They look normal. They lead normal lives. And uh, as Ted Bundy famously said, we are your husbands, we are your neighbors, we are your colleagues, we are your friends, we are your boyfriends, we are everywhere. You never know. And uh, the old cliche of the uh, 
Ed Gein type of uh, of uh, psychopath is is actually far less common than a really really normal guy suddenly showing his true face in privacy and committing acts of unspeakable horror. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I can put it any any better than that. Right, thank you. And uh, uh, how many episodes is uh, 22 Hours on American Nightmare going to run? We are expecting it to be 10 episodes. However, we're still in the production process. Um, we have a couple of them done, but we're actually, you know, not only working through potential, you know, we're still talking to people who possibly want to be on the podcast, who testified and, and working through sort of the bureaucracy of getting to them. But we're also interested in seeing if perhaps Darren Wint's brothers would want to talk to us once they learn, you know, how we're telling the story or perhaps we'll hear from one of the victim's family members. So it's still a work in progress and it makes it exciting <laughs> for this to come out and, and have it still be, you know, in the editorial process. So, yes, 10 episodes and they, the first one, we're, we're dropping them every Monday and the first one um, comes out on June 10th. Exactly. I'm looking forward to it. I am definitely going to listen. And Megan, you are the one uh, hosting this, correct? I am, yeah, for the most part. I mean, during the six-week trial, I was in the courtroom. And in D.C., you're not allowed to record anything, video or audio. And so during the trial, I would come out of the courtroom and call Jack and tell him all of the details I've learned, mostly so we were on the same page and we could report the details accurately. But we ended up recording our conversations and it ended up being kind of like an audio diary of, of the case. So very early on, we started working together on this. And a lot of throughout the podcast, you'll hear Jack's voice because he really was, you know, from the beginning, my my sounding board and um, helping me, you know, complete this together. So so I host it for the most part, but Jack is laced throughout the entire thing. It's fascinating to listen to the introductory episode because. Uh... In it, you have this very professional-sounding voice. Reminds me a lot of the uh, big news network anchors, the way they're talking. <laughs> Is it a standard American English dialect that we're hearing? It's supposed to be. Yes, yes, it is. I, I'm teasing. I mean, usually as a, as a reporter, you want to try and get rid of any accent you would you could possibly have. And, and that is usually my reporting voice. But as we've gone on through this podcast, I've gotten more comfortable voicing, you know, using really my own voice and trying not to use a, you know, a reporter or a deeper voice on it. So after a while, I, um, <laughs> it kind of calms down a little bit. It isn't so formal. But in the very beginning, yes, it's hard to do a something so horrible, you know, to cover such a horrible crime and and use your own persona. At least for me as a reporter, it was hard to do that. So Eventually, I found my voice, but in the beginning, I was kind of reporting it like I would a, a traditional news story. It's interesting with uh, with America and standard American English dialect, and and the UK as well, because there it's it's expected that, as you say, reporters remove any any accents or dialects. But um, here in Norway, it's uh, everyone speaks with dialect on the national news networks. So you can tell so where everyone is from, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. And it's uh, horribly annoying. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's, 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 very, it's very pleasant to listen to American news, in my opinion, because it distracts from the story when people are talking in their own regional extreme dialect. Mm -hmm. And uh, here in Norway, we have far more 
extreme dialects than you have in America. I mean, we have people on the West Coast that speaks so broad that it's very, very difficult to understand what they're saying. So oh, interesting. That's a digression. So um, can you, before we start to tie this up, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the work going into researching this case, uh, the sources, you mentioned some bureaucracy in getting into contact with the key witnesses. How much time have you spent and uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so we we kind of hit the ground running right after the trial ended. So that would have been in last November. But very quickly, you know, we hit the ground running and we ran into a lot of walls because for one thing, you know, trying to talk to government sources is difficult because, you know, they don't want to say the wrong thing. And and also this case is being appealed. So for, the lawyers won't talk to us at all on either side. And then, you know, some of the investigating agencies, because the lawyers won't talk to us because it's being appealed, they don't want to talk to us. And even some of the witnesses that we've tried to reach out to, I think because this case is so disturbing in a lot of ways that they just kind of, you know, there's been a conviction, the trial's over, they kind of want to forget, they want to move on. So that presented some challenges. That being said, we do, we do talk to some of the witnesses in this case who were willing to talk, people with a great deal of insight, including uh, another housekeeper who worked with the family for 20 years, who, while the family was being held, got a text message from the mother saying, you know, I'm making sure you don't come today. And so, you know, consequently she didn't. And now she's actually struggles still with a lot of guilt because she wonders, you know, maybe I was supposed to read some kind of message into that. And maybe I could have gone to the house. Maybe, you know, maybe I could have saved them, you know? So she's still, this, this happened four years ago. She still is, I mean, this, she told us she couldn't go to work for a year after this, you know, that's how psychologically impacted she was. And so that's, you know, that was a really uh, key person that we spoke to. We also go to all of the locations. The Porsche from the the family's home was stolen and burned. We go to where that happened. We go to where Darren went, was living and the family's house uh, that has since been torn down outside the police department. Uh, we kind of take you with us along for all of the interviews. We interview criminologists and other defense and prosecutors to talk about the strategy that was used to get this outcome. There was also a lot of just digging. I mean, as far as looking into Darren Wynn's history and his, his criminal background, we had to get the transcripts from the courts. And interestingly, I mentioned earlier how there's no video or audio in the courts. We actually appealed to the, uh, to the chief justice of DC Superior Court because we learned that there are audio recordings that are taken inside the courtroom sort of as a backup for the stenographers who are typing every word. If they miss something, they can go to that audio recording and make sure they got it. And we asked if we could have the audio recording so you could hear the killer in his own words when he took the stand. And, you know, we could, we could provide our listeners those voices. And that request would be unprecedented because they have these kind of confidential audio recordings, but the court has never released them in its entire history. So now they are considering doing that. And if, you know, they've launched a working group, which in America means they're reviewing it, but Essentially, if, if they do decide to start releasing audio recordings, it could completely change how news is covered in the nation's capital. That's really interesting. Maybe even I could get access to some of those very, very uh, interesting audio recordings. I often try to find original audio recordings for my episodes, and it's notoriously difficult. 
It is. It's a, it's a case, but I mean, it's a court by court basis. And in D.C., you know, all of the justices are appointed by the president. It's a very different court than you'll find in the rest of America. So to ask that is, is and to have them consider it is, is pretty phenomenal. So hopefully we'll end up getting the, the audio recordings before our podcast is over. But even if we do get them after the fact, we would consider doing, you know, additional episodes so you can hear these voices. Okay. And um, this is a podcast courtesy of your radio station. And uh, are you guys fans of podcasts such as Criminal and Serial, or have you other inspirational sources that you draw from? We actually like the podcast In the Dark, which is produced by American Public Media. And it, it was, it's, it's similar to ours in how you, you kind of take the listener on, on a journey with you as you investigate the crime and the investigation itself and how it was run and, and then the trial. So that was that was something that we listened to beforehand because this is the first time Jack and I have put together a podcast at all, let alone a podcast about a uh, crime and a trial. So we found some inspiration there. We both listen to podcasts. I cover true crime on a daily basis, so usually I find myself going home wanting a, a little bit of a break. <laughs> so I, I listen to to other things. But preparing to do this project, it was helpful to to kind of hear how other journalists and other podcasts had had done it. All right. And uh, have you listened to my podcast, the Serial Killer Podcast? I have listened to your Serial Killer Podcast. And I actually was, was interested because in how much you go into the background of the killers is interesting to me. Not necessarily just the crime, but sort of who these men were before they were found out. And women. And women. Sorry. <laughs> we're responsible as well. <laughs> but yes, there, it is a massive overweight of men. Yes, of course. But... Surprisingly, a lot of women, and uh, it's, uh, it's often more fascinating cases when it's a woman doing it, because it's so unusual, and uh, the killer is, uh, is often really, really not a cliche character. So, so yeah. You mentioned having tr trouble getting some audio and video from court cases. Do you find it sometimes difficult to get the background of the killers, depending on which government or you know, where, where the crime happened? Well, yeah. I mean, most of the work of the podcast is research, as you probably know. The recording itself is fairly rapid, but finding background material is, is difficult. And the one source that really has been invaluable is uh, local newspapers, because mm. they often go far more into uh, detail on the killer's background than the national media does. That was similar to this case because the national media covered when the crime happened and then they showed up, you know, for the verdict because why wouldn't you? But we really were there the entire time. And I think that was part of what inspired us to do the podcast because we are so used to doing daily turn short form journalism to have the opportunity to really go in depth and to explain the details and how, you know, they fall into the context of the, the story really was an opportunity we couldn't pass up. Exactly. So, um, final question. I always ask my guests this. Do you have any serial killer fiction to recommend, films or books? And if not, do you have any true crime films or books or other podcasts than your own that you really like? Jack Moore found, it was interesting, it's a great question, because Jack Moore found a movie that was very similar to this crime that was published 
decades ago. Or, yeah, or it came out old, old black and white movie. I think from the fifties. It's called The Desperate Hours, and it was and it actually predates the the Clutter case, which is the case that In Cold Blood is based upon. And so when I found out about this movie, it really kind of it made clear to me the way that there are kind of cultural currents of of crime and also of this particular idea of the home invasion. But this case was really fascinating. Uh, it's called The Desperate Hours, the movie, and the, it's based on a, on a real, real crime that happened. In this case, the family, once again, a nice, well-to-do family, two escaped convicts, you know, broke into their house, held them hostage. But in this case, fortunately, did not harm the family. And the, and the escaped convicts got away and I think eventually were caught. But then what ended up happening is the case, you know, got a lot of attention and then they dramatized it and they made, uh, I think, first a play about about this case and then this movie. But it's actually really interesting from a legal perspective, because the family then who had survived this, you know, this terrifying ordeal then ended up suing, you know, for invasion of privacy. But they their case went all the way to the Supreme Court and their lawyer was actually a former, uh, at the time, a former Republican vice president named Richard Nixon, who represented mm-hmm. them before the Supreme Court. But they ended up losing their case on First Amendment grounds because the Supreme Court ruled that, you know, yes, this horrible thing had happened to them and they were victims in it, but because it had garnered so much media attention, so much media coverage, that they were no longer just, you know, your, your average private citizen. That, you know, because of the media attention, they had kind of lost their right to privacy and that journalists and filmmakers had the right to to use their story and their coverage and they couldn't be sued, you know, for invading their privacy. Very interesting. America's First Amendment is is an example for the world, in my opinion. It's it's really interesting to see how that amendment made so many years ago centuries ago, and still has such an important part to play in modern life overseas. Here in Europe, we usually don't have anything as strong as the First Amendment in our constitutions, and uh, the result of it is uh, is quite apparent every day. So uh, I, re- I recommend you take care of it, because uh, when you lose it, it's quite horrifying. It's uh, what's going on in Europe at the moment. It's a central part of what we do every day and it protects us and lets us, you know, do our work and not be challenged just because we have the freedom of speech to do so. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's my favorite amendment. <laughs> it's important. Yes, I agree. Yes. And on that note, uh, do you have any questions for me? Anything that listening to my podcast made you curious about? I've listened, but I, I'm trying to think of anything because I, I asked you about that. I was always interested in how you researched just, you know, especially the cases in Russia and the cases, you know, where you just have such limited access, how you're able to produce an entire podcast on such limited information. But I guess you also have the breadth of experience as far as, you know, relating them to other cases. Well, short story, Internet. The Internet is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can all agree on that. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on my show. I hope uh, you have um, enjoyed it as well. So uh, I look forward to listening to the uh, new podcast, uh, 22 Hours, An American Nightmare. Thank you so much for having us on TSK. We really appreciate it. Good night and good luck.